The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my pleasure to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Mr. Bill Marler. He is an accomplished personal injury lawyer and an internationally recognized expert on foodborne illness litigation. He is also the founder of Food Safety News. Mr. Marler began representing victims of foodborne illness back in 1993 when he represented Brian Kiner, the most seriously injured survivor of the Jack in the Box E. coli outbreak, which resulted in her landmark $15.6 million settlement. Mr. Marler's advocacy for better food regulation has led to invitations to address local, national, and international gatherings on food safety including testimony before the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Energy and Commerce. Mr. Marler is going to join us today largely to speak about the infant formula crisis. Welcome, Bill. Good to be back with you. Appreciate it. So I've been following the infant formula crisis, and you recently wrote one of your publisher's platform on Food Safety News, and I thought it was so well-written and identified so many of the problems that we face in our food system that I wanted to have you come on and talk about the issue. So we know that there was an outbreak of Cronobacter infections going on for several years, and really we didn't see quick action taking place. Two infants have died Tell me what you want to bring forth about this crisis. Well, I think there's a couple of things. There's obviously blame to go around both from Abbott's responsibility, but also the FDA and sort of by extension, our responsibility to adequately assure that the FDA has a is to do it. You know, if you take a look at the Abbott issue, there were plenty of warning signs that Abbott's manufacturing facility in Sturgis, Michigan, was not safely producing infant formula, really for our most vulnerable population. If you look at the inspection reports from 2019, 2021, there was a gap in 2020 because of COVID. FDA didn't go in there at all, which is obviously concerning. But then there was a whistleblower report that came out in October of 2021 that essentially mirrored what the FDA then found in 2022. So there was enough problems going on, positive coronabacter tests and product, positive coronabacter tests on equipment that should have been blaring sirens and red flashing lights to Abbott that they needed to up their game in the production of infant formula. Exactly. We should talk a little bit about Cronobacter because Mm -hmm. this is an organism that is not tracked the way Salmonella and E. coli is. Why is that? 
That is a very good question. And uh, I helped a group named STOP, which is a essentially a group that was formed after the Jack in the Box outbreak to advocate for victims. They just wrote to the CDC and the territorial epidemiologists requesting that Coronabacter be a reportable disease in all states. Right now, it's a reportable disease in only one state, Minnesota. And why that's important is E. coli, salmonella, listeria is all reportable. So if somebody gets sick in Florida and Texas and Louisiana, Oregon, those illnesses are reported both to their state health departments and then onto the CDC, which then can be tracking to see if there's some common connection between these people. So if you're, you know, you're missing 49 states, you're really at a disadvantage to catching an outbreak sooner rather than later. So I don't know the rationale behind having Coronabacter not being reportable. It's likely that because it's such a rare disease, which begs the question is maybe it's because it's not being reported, that, but that's, to my view, it's something that needs to change. Do you know the source of Coronabacter? It is a, an environmental pathogen. So like Listeria, it is in the environment. And so that does make tracking the cause of Coronabacter somewhat more difficult for E. coli, salmonella, you know it tends to be an animal fecal bacterium where like hepatitis A is a human fecal virus. So you, you start to kind of know where they come from, but things like listeria, things like coronabacter are in the environment and so make it somewhat more difficult to particularly track. Okay. Now, we should talk about who is responsible for ensuring a safe food supply, and specifically infant formula. We've got the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and we've got the Food and Drug Administration largely looking over food. Who is responsible specifically for infant formula, and what happened in this case? You mentioned that they didn't have inspectors during the the heat of the COVID outbreak, but are there not individuals within manufacturing processes that also do safety checks in addition to what FDA and USDA might be responsible for? Right. So in the most simple terms, the breakdown between USDA and FDA essentially is that USDA division of what's called Food Safety Inspection Services, FSIS, they do uh, meat, they do poultry, they do beef, they do pork, and that's what they do. The FDA does essentially everything else, except they do fish, but they don't do catfish. USDA does catfish. So, and then there's some breakdown sometimes between pizzas, depending upon how much meat there is, they actually might be reviewed by both uh, entities. So it's a little confusing, but ultimately right now, the FDA is responsible for infant formula. Infant formula is considered to be a high-risk food item and so has sort of a higher level of scrutiny or should have a higher level of scrutiny from the FDA. But generally speaking, at best, they get into a plant once a year. That's in stark contrast to 
USDA inspectors in meat facilities that are in these meat facilities every day inspecting. Mm-hmm. Um, but your point is absolutely the, there's DPs of food safety, there's line people working at these factories that should be responsible for food safety. If you've looked at the consent decree that the FDA filed a lawsuit against Abbott and then they did a consent decree about what they were going to do, they specifically named the director of food safety as a defendant in the lawsuit. Mm. Well, there were falsification of records at the plant. There was also a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about the whistleblower in particular? Thankfully, we have whistleblowers who come forth and say, hey, wait a second, this is really a dangerous situation. Tell me what the whistleblower specifically saw that wasn't right. So if you take the whistleblower's report and that that he or she, we don't know that, sent to a variety of people at the FDA, the whistleblower knew at least who they should send it to at the FDA. And the FDA appears to have just ignored it, at least ignored it and haven't really discussed when they were aware of it and what they did with the information. But they appear to have essentially ignored it until it became public. And it appears that it came public through Congresswoman Delora's office. And so exactly how that played out, I just don't know. But essentially what the whistleblower indicated was that there were positive samples of coronabacter that were not reported to the FDA. There was uh, positive environmental samples not reported to the FDA. There were cleaning issues. There just essentially was a lack of standards that one would hope for in an infant formula manufacturing facility. And I think the key point, too, is, is that what the FDA found when they went into the facility in January 2022 mirrored very closely many of the findings that the whistleblower was reporting. Mm. Now, the Sturgis plant has since been shut down, and that is contributing to a massive shortage of infant formula. And that, of course, creates a whole other layer of concern. And one of the things that I just wanted to bring forth, and I'm going to bring this up from way back decades ago when I was working with young families, and that is that there is a very large risk from diluting infant formula. So if families are in a shortage situation and a baby is crying and anyone who's had a child or been in the vicinity of a child that's hungry, the crying can be maddening. Mm -hmm. And so you can understand how parents might be tempted to dilute the smaller amount of formula that they have. But I just want to let our listeners know that there is a great risk for diluting formula. It can be fatal. Babies suffer from water intoxication because it interferes with their ability to absorb nutrients. So we have to talk about, well, what are our alternatives? And I know that we are getting imports of formula. There had been restrictions on importing formula with uh, strict tariffs attached to those because we didn't want to interfere with the makings or the mechanisms of the U.S. production. 
What do you want our listeners to know about the shortage issue? Well, the tariff issue, sort of aside, you know, that's a you know, that's a political issue that's been around at least for three or four years. I mean, I I also look at the fact that you know one of the things the pandemic has teaching us is how vulnerable our supply chain is and how when you have companies that have such enormous market share or when we are relying on products that are produced overseas, like you've seen it in like the masks and the gloves situation that you know, we de- were dependent upon, you know, supply chains that were very long that stretched to China and, you know, we wound up not having enough masks and not having enough gloves, not having enough PPE. I think we're sort of seeing that same issue playing out here in the infant formula where you have, when you take one manufacturer offline for a period of time, it just has this enormous ripple effect when you couple it with supply chain issues and tariffs, which then you have just having military aircraft flying in infant formula from Europe. It's clearly we're learning a lot about supply chain and powers of the marketplace that uh, shouldn't be on the backs of, you know, moms and dads looking for an infant formula. Exactly. Um, you know, that, I mean, I think the sort of the the bigger issue that I don't really have a handle on is that when you essentially had Abbott under, arguably under investigation from September of 2021 until they were shuttered in February of 2022, what could the FDA and Abbott have been doing in that intervening five months? to assure that the plant would not have to close because I would think that both Abbott and the FDA would have some idea that if that plant closed, the impact it would have on infant formula supply. And I think that's just, that's a part of an untold story that, you know, the FDA and Abbott haven't answered yet, but I think that that's really going to be something that I think needs to be fleshed out, primarily because we don't want to find ourselves in this same situation, either with infant formula or some other product that is really necessary for children and others in our society. Well, let me take one break, Bill, because we're halfway through, and I just want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Mr. Bill Marler. He is an accomplished personal injury lawyer and internationally recognized expert on foodborne illness litigation. He is also the founder of Food Safety News, which has run a series of excellent review articles about the infant formula crisis. I'm really glad you brought up the role of the FDA because there's been a lot of discussion about FDA. It stands for Food and Drug Administration, and that the F part of that word, food, has really fallen by the wayside, and much of the energy and effort of FDA has focused mostly on drugs. And there's been discussion about, well, should we break away and have a separate food agency? Do you have any thoughts about that? Boy, that's a... You know, that, that has been discussed for, I don't know, two decades or mm-hmm. more to have, a, and there have been fits and starts in, I think, almost every administration since the Clinton administration. 
you know, I, a wise person, and I think it was Mike Taylor who was head of FSIS in the Clinton administration and then head of food safety at the FDA in the Obama administration. I think he once said that you are sort of building a food safety system for government. You certainly wouldn't do it the way you, <laughs> you did it now. But I personally think that that there is utility in pulling together essentially about 13 different public entities into one shop that was focused on food safety writ large, both from a nutritional point of view as well as the straight-up pathogen reduction point of view. But I'm not quite sure what, what the the reason for that not happening has been. I think there's probably lots, but I still think we obviously need to focus on food safety and nutrition with the, the bureaucracy that we have. But, you know, the FDA is under a lot of pressure presently. You've seen some of the articles in Politico and recently about some of the miscommunications within FDA and the lack of clear authority that I think in many respects causes many of the food safety crises that we see today, including the infant formula one. And I think the infant formula industry, like so many industries, really, they don't like to be regulated. And yet when you have a crisis like this, it just shows that we need to rethink how we think about regulation and see them more as protections. Mm -hmm. I also think that you bring up a good point about all the lessons that COVID is teaching us. And I think that there's been such a big push in the food industry to consolidate for efficiency, mm -hmm. but we're learning that there is a cost to that right. push for efficiency. So we've got four basic manufacturers for all of the infant formula that we use. And I was interested to learn that Abbott actually supplies half of all of the WIC agencies, and that stands for the Women, Infant, and Children Program. Any thoughts about that? You know, we live in a capitalist, market-driven economy. And going back to my one of my bachelor's degrees was in economics. And so one of the things about capitalism is, is that if left unchecked, it does tend to skew towards monopoly. And that's what we're seeing. And, you know, when whether it be a monopoly or an infant formula, capitalism will skew that way. The other thing, too, is, is that with globalization, uh, there's all kinds of benefits to globalization, prices being reduced, having market commercial relationships with countries that perhaps we normally would be competitive from a military point of view. But one of the problems all of that has is that when there's a crisis, whether it's a production failure at an infant formula factory that deals with 40% of the supply or COVID and you need a gloves and masks, but they're all made in China, it becomes problematic. And there's that's where regulatory balance needs to be added to the equation. Absolutely. So if you had a some sort of a, a magic ball where you could look into the future from a legal perspective, what do you think the future of infant formula production is going to look like as a result of this tragedy? 
Well, I do think that the you can see from the consent decree that the FDA and Abbott entered into, I think uh, Abbott is facing some level of civil liability on behalf of the, the victims of this tragedy. But also I think they have to worry fairly significantly about the criminal fines, most likely, not jail time. But I think you are looking at this company may well be facing some criminal sanctions for what happened. You know, longer term, I think that there are certain, I think we've learned a lot both in COVID and by this crisis, that there likely are products that we need to make sure that we have adequate, shall we call it, surge capacity when there's a crisis. So we aren't left flat-footed or without, whether it be infant formula or N95 masks. Right. And I think, too, that this is a a wake-up call that while breastfeeding is not as economically favorable to the industries that are making infant formula, I think it's important for women to understand that infant formula is really expensive and it costs about $1,000 a year, where breastfeeding is essentially free for the 500 extra calories that women need to consume to produce the breast milk. But our hospitals really aren't geared towards supporting women and their newborn babies. You know, there rarely can you find a lactation consultant on staff 24-7, although they're needed that often. I think we as a culture need to look more in terms of how can we support mothers and their new babies. We say that we love children and we want to support them, but when it comes right down to it, we don't seem to behave that way. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, as a, as a father of three daughters, we had the luxury and my wife was able to stay home and breastfeed and, you know, work part time. And that worked out great for us. But we as a society need to really come to grips with supporting moms and babies. You know, I know that it, in my law firm, we have a, a both a, a father and mother parental leave uh, four months. And, of course, my oldest daughter just told me that uh, the company she works for has a five-month policy. So now I'm under the gun to <laughs> increase that. So, That's great. So, but, but, you know, the, the fact is, is that we need to do that. And we need to – businesses do need to support – government needs to support moms and dads you know, in this real critical point where the first months of life in these these babies is so critical to their health and their future well-being, both to the, the individual child, their family, but also to all of us. So I think we really need to step up our support for that. And exactly how we get there, uh, I'm not sure, but I know I'm going to add another four weeks to my leave policy to make me at least equal to my daughter's employer. <laughs> well, so. it's it's really wonderful whenever an employer shows that kind of respect for their workers. You know, we give a lot of lip service to essential workers, but treating essential workers with respect and that means helping them through childbirth and supporting their new babies is really important. 
I want to, I really want to talk about the value of food safety news in the remaining time that we have. We just have a few minutes. And I've been a big fan of your newsletter and your personal blogs for many years. And I love to track, for example, the food recalls that you have. Most recently, I've been reading about Jif peanut butter, as well as keeping track of what's new in the salmonella and the chronobacter infant formula Mm -hmm. contamination stories. Mm -hmm. But how do you keep up with all of this recall data? It is mind-blowing, isn't it, to see just about every day there's a recall? Well, the great thing is, real quickly, you know, I started Food Safety News in 2009, early 2009. Essentially, it was a run-up to the coverage of the Food Safety Modernization Act. There were just a lot of really great reporters at some of the major newspapers and magazines that, and TV stations that had just sort of disappeared who covered food safety. And I just saw that it really was, there was a need for it. So I hired a couple of reporters and then we, we now are up to four full-time reporters, one in Europe, one in New York, one in Kansas and one in Colorado. And we, they pretty much cover the world and they, they have contacts and pay attention to what governments are doing around the world with respect to recalls, food safety. You know, they go to all the major food safety conferences. The International Association of Food Protection in uh, Europe just happened. The Food Safety Summit just occurred in Chicago. So it's a labor of love for a bunch of really good reporters, and I'm really pleased that I've been able to sort of help support them. Well, this is a one-stop shop in terms of anybody who wants to keep up with what's going on in the larger food system. And I just was perusing some of your titles under the recalls, 90 tons of bacon topping recalled because of metal pieces. <laughs> you know, that I mean, it's mind-blowing, yeah. isn't it, to think about the yeah. quantity and and what happens to that, especially as we're getting so focused on climate issues and food waste and resource use for all of this. Any final words on these larger issues? You know, philosophically, this is 30 years of experience of dealing with most of the major outbreaks that everyone knows about from Jack in the Box to Listeria and Cantaloupe to Salmonella and Peanuts. The one thing that I have been struck with is many of these companies sort of stop thinking about the fact that they're actually manufacturing a product that goes into people's stomachs and that they are so focused on production that it's not really the product of a food like we think of it. It's just another manufactured item. And I think that that's really what manufacturers and and regulators need to focus on is that these are products that go into many times the most vulnerable individuals' mouths. It's our children, our elderly, uh, our immune-compromised citizens. And I think they need to take a, a real hard look at how they're doing it and realizing that it's it's a very special type of a of a product. It's not some car part. Exactly. Right. Well, we are out of time, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn, 
for KOPN Studios in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Bill Marler, personal injury lawyer and internationally recognized expert on foodborne illness. His website is foodsafetynews.com. I'll provide a link to that. Thank you so much for your time today, Mr. Marler. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks. Nice to talk to you again.